Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What you are about to hear is a work of investigative journalism that explores one woman's search for answers in her son's death. The views and opinions in this podcast do not reflect those of iHeartMedia. Previously on Somebody. Okay, so you heard two shots fired on the block? So when I found out what had happened, the first thing I did was reach out to the local gangbangers. Um, none of them took admittance to it. This whole thing is just gets stranger and stranger by the minute. And so I have theories in my head, but somebody covering for somebody. My name is Shapiro Wells. This is a story of my son, Courtney, a young black man in a fancy car who wound up with a bullet in his back in front of a Chicago police station. And it's the story of my search for the truth. This is Somebody. Everybody, somebody's everything. Nobody's nothing. So there's this thing that I haven't told you about yet. I didn't even tell Allison in the Invisible Institute for a long time. 
Because when it happened, I was told it wasn't important. But it turns out, it was. When I first met with police, just a few days after Courtney was shot, I told them about a tip I got on Facebook. It was from a guy who went by Randall Cunningham, like the football player. The note went like this. Good morning. I have to state I'm very sorry for your loss. I just wanted to see if this info may help you. I was coming home from the gym that night. This guy, Randall, lived in Belmont Cragen. And the night Courtney died, he saw three guys in a grand marquee who tossed a pistol. He called 911 twice. He sent me photos along with the message, mugshots, and a photo of the grand marquee that showed his license plate. I thanked him and brought it all to police. They called the police? That call yes, they is, did. yeah. yeah that's, you got that's, that? already been, okay. that's already been addressed. They told us that they already knew about that and that it was not related. So this is not, not, not the research and yes. not, it's not related. Yes. So this was a separate incident? Separate incident, correct. Okay. They and said it wasn't connected at all, but I still wanted to give them all the information Randall gave me anyway. He gave me names, uh, the two people that, uh, that he saw in that vehicle. In that vehicle. What names did he provide to you? Um, and... Uh, and he said it was three. They said it three. Was three. The third one ran. Yeah, those. That's two. all correct. Yeah. Okay. That's all correct. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, unrelated to the caller calls in immediately, and this is well after your son was was shot. Detective Amato said Randall's nine one one call was way after Courtney's shooting. To me, they were like, you know, whatever, lady. We've already decided that this is not credible. We're going to take your information, but we're not going to do anything with it. I moved on because I was grieving. I had to finish burying my son. I was planning Courtney's funeral, and at the time, I was still thinking police shot my son. And when detectives dismissed it, I thought, well, maybe they're right. But I later came to find out from those 911 call logs that Randall's first call wasn't way later than Courtney's shooting. It was 37 minutes after Courtney was shot. So when the first 911 caller's husband, Edgar, saw some gangsters in his alley in a grand marquee, it reminded me of Randall's tip. Allison and I, we went back and looked at the picture of the car Randall sent me on Facebook two years earlier. And there it was, a grand marquee. And the license plate started with Z44. Edgar had remembered the first two digits. And when I went back to the police report about Elena, it said that she saw a license plate starting with C44. C and Z, you know, they sound a lot alike. So the witness accounts matched up, and the police never connected the dots. We needed to talk to this Facebook tipster, Randall Cunningham, face-to-face to find out who he really was and see what else he knew about what happened that night. Any details that could help us. My name is Allison. 
I got your number from Shapurl Wells, the mother of Courtney Copeland. We texted and went to an address we found for him. No one was home, so we left a note. That night, we got a call back from Randall's uncle, who'd found the note. He put us in touch with Randall. So we made plans to meet. Randall said we could catch him after a showing of Black Panther. Bill and I waited for Randall in the food court of a suburban Chicago mall over pretzels and smoothies. Black Panther is a long movie. Finally, he came out. Did your uncle tell you we tried to reach you at his place? He did, and then I was like, why are are the feds at the door? So I kind of thought you guys were feds. I'm like, what's going on here? But uh, they told me it was related to the case, and I'm like, wow. He told us that even though he'd called 911 twice, he still wanted to reach out to Shapurl directly. I saw um, Mr. Copeland's mother on the news, and I felt terrible, you know? And I figured, well, why, if, you know, if there's this type of information out, why wouldn't I want to try to reach out. We asked him to walk us through what he saw when he was driving home that night from the beginning. I was coming home from an export gym. Uh, It was pretty late at night. Um, As I was coming home, uh, I noticed uh, an individual was in the street and I almost hit him. So uh, I kind of looked at him and I could tell he was gang affiliated colors and his hat was cocked and he kind of threw a sign at me and I'm like, well, whatever. The guy Uh, who threw the gang sign looked like he'd been running, like something had happened. Randall went to turn onto his street when he noticed a car just sitting there, a Grand Marquis. Short time later, the car starts moving. Randall parked and ran to his apartment. He looked out a window and saw that the Grand Marquis had driven up the block, then backed up. And then up the block again and then reversed and did it again. Like they were, I don't know what was going on, if they were intoxicated or whatever. Randall called 911. The cops were on their way. Then he saw a guy get out of the car. It was the same one who had just thrown gang signs at him. And two more guys got out of the car. They tossed a weapon and scurried away. So Randall called 911 again. You know, probably wouldn't put two and two together. Um, And they quickly ditched the pistol. I heard like a loud thud. You can hear like a metal clank sound, like get thrown to the ground. Uh, so I actually went out to try to recover it. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell came over me. I'm a concealed carry holder, so I figured, well, let me go see what this is. And there's kids on the neighborhood, so, you know, I didn't want I didn't want a kid to find it. But before Randall could get there, one of the guys came back to retrieve what they threw. And I know it was a pistol because the way they were holding it, uh, it was shiny. And uh, I told the cops, hey, this was a, the description of the individuals, which direction they fled and which way they went and whatnot. The cops went up the block to get the guys. The gun was gone, but Randall did find an iPhone. So I actually went through it, and uh, there's a couple videos of them drinking in a car. Um, and then there was a video of them flashing a revolver. One was a revolver, the other gun was like a 9 millimeter. Randall offered to give the phone to police. They, they contacted me, and they told me, hey, uh, you know, what's going on? And they were kind of brief about what they, you know, what they wanted, and then they hung up. And then they called back again, and I'm like, yeah, well, do you want me to come to the station or not? And they were like, well, no, at this time, no. Uh, So that was that. The police uh, never followed up. And then Randall lost the iPhone in a move. We asked him about those mugshots from his Facebook message. 
How did he know who these guys were? Uh, somebody that I knew in the neighborhood um, knew one of the individuals in the car. So, yeah, I, I kind of asked, well, what had happened? And they said they were questioned, and then they were, they were pretty much released. They never found he them. said he doesn't know the guys personally, and then the car was, but he does know yeah. of them. I'm not gang-affiliated, never believed in gangs or none of that, but uh, I did believe in, you know, getting crimes figured out and solved and, you know, making sure justice is served. So, um, like a, you know. There's one more thing you need to know about Randall. He's a Chicago police officer. Allison, when you told me that Randall was a cop, I was shocked. But, you know, I was grateful more than anything because this information was vital. Did it make sense once you found out he was a cop? I thought that, well, if he wasn't a cop, he was definitely trying to be one because he knew exactly what the words to say and, and he knew what to give me. So the night Courtney died, when Randall called this in to 911, he was still a civilian. He was just a guy in the neighborhood reporting what he saw. But now he's been a cop for more than two years. So we were a little surprised that he was still willing to talk to us. I mean, I was just so grateful for anybody to give me information. The fact that he was a cop, it made me have some type of hope that all cops aren't bad, you know? I wish there were more Randalls on the Chicago police force. I mean, what if he had never come forward? Without him coming forward, we wouldn't be able to connect the dots, corroborate what Edgar and Elena said about the car and the guys inside it. But the frustrating part is it has taken us over two years to get here. All of this should have been known on day one. And it turns out it was all right there on the police radio the whole time. Camille Hispanic explaining black hoodies were sitting in the Silver Grand Marquis. Here's a they threw a gun under the car. When we asked the city for all the police dispatch in Courtney's case, we got about an hour of tape back. The first 25 minutes had Courtney flagging down Officer Block for help. The gentleman just said he was shot. His license plates. Edward 551790. His name. The victim is a male. His name is Courtney Copeland. And Elena calling in. One ticket of shots fired at Fullerton and Long Long in Fullerton. Caller heard two shots on the block. I got no description. But then later in the radio tape, there's this. For 35 minutes. When we asked why this was bleeped out, the city told us, again, that it was unrelated. We pushed back and had to wait months to get the full tape. And when you listen to it, come find out, it's completely related. A mercury tinted windows, three occupants circling the block twice and then reversed. It may have a flat tire. It's double parked by the fire hydrant. There's a male black red jacket on the corner, flashing gang signs. So once again, it's up to us to investigate. We really wanted to know more about these gangsters Randall saw ditching this gun. Two of the men actually were arrested up the block the night my son was killed. There's two male Hispanics wearing black hoodies were sitting in the Silver Grand Marquis. Uh, it says uh, he drove by and it appeared that they threw a gun under the car. They have since recovered whatever was thrown under there and they're walking northbound. The dispatcher is relaying Randall's 911 call to the police. 
She says two male Hispanics wearing black hoodies were sitting in a grand marquee. It appears they threw a gun under the car, which they've since recovered, and they're walking northbound. That's two foxholes walking westbound on Delta towards Laramie. And then the officer says, got two possibles walking westbound on Belden toward Laramie. The police arrested two men who were charged with a parole violation for associating with gang member, which basically mean they were just hanging out with each other. They were released the same day. And the third guy... There's a man black red jacket on the corner flashing gang signs. He got away. We decided not to reveal their names because no one has been charged in connection with Courtney's case. And we don't know who, if any of these guys, shot Courtney. What we do know is that the police should have followed these leads. But when we dug around, we found out that all three men Randall saw that night are members of the Stylers gang. All of them have been convicted of gun offenses and all have done time. They all have really long rap sheets. This is the Facebook video of one of the men who was arrested that night. At the time of Courtney's death, he was on parole for armed robbery sentence. And the man that Randall saw flashing gang signs, he's the one that got away. He's been arrested 16 times since 2010. Randall and Edgar identified the same type of car, but we wanted to see if they'd identify the same men inside the car too. So we decided to do something the police had never done, a double-blind photo lineup. We put together a big stack of mugshots to show Edgar. We included the mugshots Randall sent to Chaparral and men who looked similar to them, plus some random mugshots too. And because Edgar remembered someone in the vehicle with long hair, we included Alma's neighbor and other men with long hair. Hi, Elena. Hi. Hi, how are you? Hi, fine. How are you? Yeah, my cute little baby back here. Yeah. Hey I went over to Elena and Edgar's again. Oh, Chaparral stayed back. We didn't want Edgar to feel any extra pressure to make an identification. We got set up in their living room. So if you, it, it's, you know, very unlikely that you'll be able to identify anyone. So... There's absolutely no pressure to do it. Just if you I brought along one of our summer like, reporting oh, fellows, that, Matilda. That looks like, that looks like the lineup was double blind because neither Edgar nor Matilda knew who was who in the mugshots. We didn't want to influence Edgar to pick out certain people. Elena stuck around to translate. Okay. I left the room, and they went through the photos, one by one. Edgar said, this one looks like him a little bit. It maybe it looks like him. Maybe. Yeah. Photo after photo. No, he said. No, he said. No. Then he turned to the next photo. 
and right away, he stopped. Uh, he thinks I wanted it. Because he, he remembered the long hair. He'd landed on the guy with the long hair, Alma's neighbor who lived by the church. That one, I think, is one of them. Edgar picked out two other mugshots. He was less sure about these. But one of them was one of the guys arrested that night up the block from Randall. All right. Um, okay, that's all we had. Thank you very much. Okay. It just keeps going and going. <laughs> We're just trying to help the family find some answers. So Randall and Edgar's accounts were matching up more and more. Okay, thank you, Elena. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. We felt like we were getting close to finding out who shot my son. So we reached out to Courtney's friend June again because we wanted to see if he can talk to some of his gang contacts. We were trying to figure out if June knew any of the guys in the mug shots. When June asked around for us, he told us it was like opening Pandora's box. One day, two gang chiefs showed up at his door. They said, you've been asking a lot of questions. After that, June changed his number and moved. When we caught up with him again months later, he said he didn't want to have an ear to the streets anymore. He wanted to have an ear to the stock market because he was all about his cigar business. He was done dealing information. With June out of the picture, we chased a different lead, the car. We wanted to track down that grand marquee, but it wasn't registered to anyone anymore. We did find out who owned the Grand Marquis when Courtney was killed. Her first name was Crystal. We didn't know anything about her except for her address. So we hit the road. So that's, it's not that far. No, she's pretty close, but within Mm -hmm. a mile, you know. Mm -hmm. On the way, we talked about Courtney, like we always do. He always said he was going to be famous. I don't think this is what he wanted to be famous for. But he had this, this ominous feeling that, that he was going to die young. You know, I think he had some fear and some anxiety because his, his father and his grandfather also died of heart issues. We're going where, Allison? Yeah, so just take it a little further okay. south. Anyway, the last anxiety attack he had was probably about six weeks before he died. And he was like, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I'm like, Courtney, you're not having a heart attack. If you were having a heart attack, you wouldn't be able to sit here and tell me to take you to the doctor. So he was like, I just keep seeing myself dying. Because I knew knew what it was. I knew he was having a panic attack. I told him, you do what I told you to do, which is pray. We're all here on borrowed time, Courtney. You know, not thinking in six weeks, my son will be dead. That was the last serious, serious conversation that I had with Courtney before he died. Crystal Street was lined with matching brick two flats. We didn't want to freak her out, so we left the recorder behind. We walked up to her building and rang the doorbell for her apartment. 
We waited. We were about to walk away when a woman came out. It was Crystal. We showed her a picture of the Grand Marquis. She said, yes, that used to be her car. We told her about Courtney's murder and that witnesses pointed to this car. She said she got rid of that car before 2016 on Craigslist. We showed her the mugshots of the guys. She said she didn't know any of them. We were bummed. We had hoped she could tell us more. We thanked her and got back into the van. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. She's the shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Well, I definitely think she's lying. I think she does know more than what she's saying. And um, she wants to make sure that it's, it's not traceable back to her. I think when you showed her the pictures, that really threw her. What do you think, Allison? I don't know. She seemed genuinely caught off guard and surprised, yeah. you know, but I don't know. Shapiro was right. Crystal was lying to us. A few weeks later, we were digging around in some court documents, and we saw Crystal was listed as the girlfriend of the guy who got away from the cops that night. They even have kids together. We found some photos of him on Facebook. One of the pictures shows him at a gravesite with one of the two stylers arrested the night Courtney died. Now we had evidence connecting them to each other, and the car. We hadn't heard from Randall in a while, until one morning, November 1st, 2018. He texted me. Did you hear what happened on Long and Belden? Female executed in front of her kids and friend over a car. Be safe in that neighborhood. My stomach dropped. It was the same corner where Courtney was shot. And... The car was a BMW. It was all over the news. 
This is just absolutely heartbreaking. The victim's family says she was out celebrating Halloween and was trick-or-treating with her twin sister and two nieces when a masked man jumped into their car and forced them to drive. Police want to find out why a young woman was murdered by a masked man who forced his way into the car. CBS 2's V. Wynn live at the 25th District Police Station in Belmont, Cragen with more. The gunman made them drive several blocks before he shot and killed one of the women on the same street where the gangsters and the Grand Marquis tossed the gun. The gunman took off running to Blackhawk Park, Styler's territory. Okay, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I got on the phone with Chaparral right have, away. Have you seen the news today? Uh, yeah, you know that, that shooting right by Courtney, right? Yeah, exactly right by Courtney. It was uh, Belton yeah. and Long right past yeah. the church. I'm looking at the address, I'm like, oh, my God. This is, like, right here. I told her it was a BMW, too. Are you serious? This is, like, just sent my PTSD right off the rails. I know. I know. I'm sorry. We discussed whether we should go to the police with what we knew. But they have that information, though, Allison. I know they have it, but they they don't understand its significance. But I just, it doesn't feel like they did the kind of detective work that we've done. Because I'm thinking, like, if, if, you know, I know my son was gone. But did this other girl have to die? You know what I'm saying? It's always been about preventing things from happening to other people for me. If this was the same person, I'm hoping that they would actually follow up. In the end, we decided we had a responsibility to come forward. If there was any chance our findings could help them solve this woman's murder. I really didn't want to meet with those jokers again, but I sucked it up. Maybe this time, if I came in with two white journalists, they'd actually listen to me. Allison, it's Detective Amato. Uh, I spoke with you a little earlier. So we called to set something up. Sergeant Mitchell and one of the supervisors from here will be contacting you sometime. A few days later, me... Allison and Bill were sitting down with Sergeant Mitchell and Detective Amato. They agreed to meet us only if I didn't record. But the meeting was on the record. What did you think about the police stipulating that you couldn't record? And I wish we would have recorded. (laughs) I do. I promise you I wanted to. I really did. We met for about two hours in the same conference room as before, but no one walked out on me this time. Sergeant Mitchell, he wore a tie and was red-faced as ever. Detective Amato wore a pullover. He barely took any notes. Here's what happened. We brought in two huge binders of documents, and we told police what we knew. So we walked them through our evidence. Allison started by showing them a map. We highlighted the corner of Belden and Long by the church where the neighbors heard the shots that night. We told him we believed this is where Courtney was shot because his friends found broken glass on the street and others, they saw skid marks. And it's where Courtney usually parked because he'd received tickets there before. At this point, they said we weren't telling them anything they didn't already know. But we kept laying out the scene for them anyway. We explained that right before the incident, we believe Courtney was parking his car. He was on his phone, texting Alma, Facebook messaging his friend. He was distracted. That's when someone shot him 
Courtney turned and ducked, getting hit in the back. When Courtney sped off towards the police station, a grand marquee quickly drove around the block, cutting through Elena and Edgar's narrow alleyway, with the windows rolled down, giving Edgar a good look. Two years later, Edgar still remembered the car and the first few digits of the license plate. At this point, we showed police the two mugshots Edgar picked out in the double-blind lineup. The man with the long hair, Alma's neighbor, and a second guy, a member of the Stylers gang, who was arrested that night. And that's when the detectives said to each other that they needed to talk to Edgar. Then we kept going with the play-by-play. Right after my son arrived at the hospital, Randall spotted the grand marquee on his block and called 911. When the guys heard the police coming, they tossed the gun under the car nearby and took off on foot. But before police could retrieve the gun, someone came back for it. Two of the guys were arrested up the block and released without questioning. The third one got away. We gave police his name. We gave them a copy of Randall's Facebook message about the Grand Marquis, license plate, the weapon, the mugshots. That's when one of the detectives said, you never told me this. But I did. Remember? I even have it on tape. I also have uh, some information that I received from another Facebook person randomly. They told me that uh, the night of uh, the shooting, there was a um, what kind of car? It looks like a, a grand marquee. I have that plate number. Like your plate number. They said that they were looking out their window, mm-hmm. and they saw them throw a gun under, under the, the truck. Under the truck. Mm-hmm. They called the police. That call yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's, that's that? already been. Okay, that's yeah. already been addressed. None of us were surprised about how detectives acted during this meeting. Detective Amato said he'd seen the video of Courtney outside the station. That much I already knew. But what surprised me was he said he didn't think Courtney was being combative. I didn't know what to make of this. No one had their story straight. Was this a cover-up? Or are they just this damn incompetent? At the end of our meeting, they told us they were going to assign new detectives to the case and work these new leads. We all hopped in Bill's car in the parking lot to regroup. You got me, dear. I had to bite my tongue so many times. It was so patronizing. I think he called someone darling, too. I felt that they were a little bit evasive when they talked about uh, the two being arrested that night and why they couldn't... It was a murder. Why wouldn't you want to investigate them? They're known gang members. They have a, a long rap sheet. So tell me why you couldn't pull them in for questioning for this murder. Why, why wouldn't you do that? That didn't make sense to me because they're already arrested. And then you also had that 911 caller who was giving you a description of suspects that he's seen in the neighborhood who threw a gun underneath a car. So this is when they talk about we don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough uh, probable cause to pull them over. Hell, you get pulled over for a busted light in Chicago. And they question you. They take you out your car. They they handcuff you. They do all types of stuff. So you telling me that you don't have enough evidence or enough probable cause, that's bullshit. And I wanted to reiterate to them that, you know, insofar as they were 
frequently saying that these are leads, not evidence. This is circumstantial. And it's sort of like, yeah, I know. I am coming to you because another woman was killed in a BMW on that corner. Like, I'm not saying that this is solid evidence ready to go to court. I am saying that this is what I know about the case, and it's more than what you know about the case. Bill noticed something during the meeting. I had turned my face away because I was crying, and I didn't want the detective to see. Were you crying out of frustration? I I was crying because my son is still dead. At, At the end of the day... My son did. So it's just like, and, and I, I must admit, I'm finna get emotional now. So forgive me, you know, because I'm like, you know, every time I get closer, I get a setback. And I, and I sometimes I'd be like, okay, you have to stop. You have to stop for yourself, for your health. But you have to stop for your kids, for your husband. Because this, this whole murder has... It's like a ticking time bomb that just like exploded in my life. And you're trying to take the millions of pieces and put them together. And so parts of me will never, ever be whole. It's an emotional strain on my family, my husband, my my marriage. It's, it's all of this. So the last couple of days, I've just been going through it. We needed to step away. I hoped that the police would finally do their jobs. I think that right now, based on us leaving them with the information that we left them with, that that they're just going to appease us by passing us off to some new detectives. Nothing is going to happen. They're not going to interview. They're not going to follow up. They're not going to even investigate anything other than what they've already done. My son will still be a cold case in Chicago. So, so it's been more than a year since we sat down with detectives. Chaparral, what's happened in the last year? Absolutely nothing. You hear crickets. They haven't called me. They haven't given me any updates. They haven't contacted any of the witnesses that we gave them. I haven't heard a peep from police. We've checked in with Edgar Randall, Elena, all of these witnesses, and they haven't contacted them. Press three. Or to speak to an operator, press zero. Please speak after the tone. Hi, Detective Bausch. My name is Shapiro Wells. I'm the parent of Courtney Copeland. I was calling to get a status update on his case. He was murdered on March 4th, 2016. A couple of weeks later after I left this message, Allison actually ran into one of the detectives on Courtney's case, Detective Amato. She bumped into him at Sesame Street Live. She was there with her family, and Amato was working security. She said hello and reminded him about the case. Two weeks later, Amato called me. I was at church. Hi, Miss Wells. This is Detective Amato over at Area North. I was wondering if you give me a call back at your earliest convenience. 
I called him back as soon as I got home. Then I hopped back on the line with Allison. Okay, hey, Chappelle. Hey, okay, so basically his call was based on uh, him wanting to all of a sudden put Courtney's case in the cold case file and make it a profile on their website. What does that mean? So he wants to put Courtney's photo and everything onto the website stating that they're looking for information. Yeah. Did he say he had not talked to Edgar yet? He ain't talked to Edgar. Right. He basically admitted that he ain't talked to Edgar. And what about? Or random. Um, so they basically didn't follow up on our leads over the last year, and now they're wanting to all of a sudden put it in the cold case unit. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, how are you feeling? I felt like he was blowing smoke because it was like, oh, I'm thinking about your son's case, and I've been trying. Whatever, dude. I'm like, well, and he was like, well, well, if you want to meet with me again and we'll go over everything, I'm like, yeah. I mean, we already gave them everything. And I was trying to tell him, I said, that's why we were wondering, why didn't you speak to Elena's husband? Because I said, I basically told him, I said, that information matched. Elena's husband said a grand marquee. Randall said a grand marquee. And I said, it wasn't that far in between from the initial shooting. <sighs> wow. You had this stuff for a year and you ain't did nothing. When I watch the news, I keep seeing over and over again whose lives matter and whose cases matter enough to solve. No matter how many times I meet with the police, my son's murder still doesn't seem to matter to them. But this whole thing is so much bigger than who pulled the trigger on my son. It's so much bigger than Courtney's case. Things don't have to be this way. And there's so much more I've got to do. Everybody, somebody's every day. Nobody's nothing. Oh, nobody. That's right. Somebody is a co-production of the Invisible Institute. The Intercept, Topic Studios, and iHeartRadio in association with Tenderfoot TV. I'm Shapiro Wells. This podcast is produced by Allison Flowers and Bill Healy. Sarah Geis is our story editor. Ellen Glover is our associate producer. For The Invisible Institute, Jamie Calvin is executive producer. For Topic Studios, Maria Zuckerman, Christy Gressman, and Letal Malad are executive producers. Special thanks to Lizzie Jacobs. For The Intercept, Roger Hodge, deputy editor, is supervising producer. Sound design by Carl Scott and Bart Warshaw. Our theme song, Everybody's Something, is by Chance the Rapper. Original music for the podcast by Nate Fox of The Social Experiment and Eric Butler. Additional reporting by Sam Stecklow, Annie Wynn, Kahari Blackburn, Rajiv Sinclair, Henry Adams, Matilda Voyat, Dana Brozos Kelleher, Francis McDonald, Diana Akmajian, Maddie Anderson, Andrew Fan, and Irissa Apentaku. Translation support by Benny Hernandez Ocampo and Emma Perez. 
Fact-checking by Nawal Arjeni. Special thanks to Chris Rasmussen, Bennett Epstein, Matt Topic, David Braylo, and Julie Wolf. We want to hear from you. Email us at info at somebodypodcast.com or leave us a voicemail at 773-270-0121. To learn more about this case and for links to additional materials, go to our show page at somebodypodcast.com. You can also find a list of everyone we want to thank there. So many people helped us along the way. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con Season 5 The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts Or wherever you get your podcasts the Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.